You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back and on this Friday the 10th of December. Hello Kevin and hello to Larry and Larissa. Thank you for joining us. Larry and Larissa and all the listeners. Now uh, what have we got in store for the show this week Anne? This week we are returning to our conversation with Professor Steve Keane who is a heterodox economist and candidate with the new Liberal Party, the new party that's springing up to face off in the next election. To Steve Keane, his uh, views on unemployment and, uh, and etc. And electoral politics, which seems to be seeping into the conversations at the moment. Yes. Let's have a listen to what he has to say. Our very special guest today is Professor Steve Keane. Welcome to the show, Professor Keane. Good to be with you. Just for Larry and Larissa, who might be listening and don't know about your colourful economic past, (laughs) (laughs) I'll just let them know that one of your claims to fame is that you are one of the very few economists in the world to publicly warn of a serious economic downfall, which did happen shortly afterwards in 2008, and that was the global financial crisis. And one of your main research interests is in developing a complex systems approach to macroeconomics and the economics of climate change. And of course, another of your claims to fame is perhaps being the first crowdfunded economist on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Successfully crowdfunded. I'm on Patreon. Just to give the full Earl, www.patreon.com slash Prof Steve Keen. And uh, uh, successful in that sense that I've got a, enough of an income from Patreon not to have to do anything else, which is incredibly liberating when it comes to research and advocacy, of course. There's one other guy, Richard Wolf, who's overtaken me. Richard's a, a good friend in the States. Uh, he's now making more on Patreon in a, a, a collective system. Uh, but all the neoclassicals have tried to fail, which I'm really pleased about. That's good to see. Good to see. The people are voting with their dollars. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you recently made quite a splash with your announcement uh, to run as a Senate candidate for a new party that is known as the New Liberals. And on this show, we have spoken with Victor Klein, who is the leader of the New Liberals. I'm imagining that Victor must be a pretty persuasive guy, um, Steve, because I think this might involve you having to make another international move. Yeah, I was in, uh, living in the UK for since 2014, and then uh, my wife, we and I met in in, uh, in the Netherlands in about 2017, and I bought a house there, and then the COVID hit. And I was watching the numbers very carefully and was horrified by how badly the UK and the Netherlands are both doing. And so we've got to get the hell out of here. Australia and Thailand are both doing better. So I was in Australia. And then I, I got back to um, the UK on the 12th of March. I got to uh, the Netherlands, I think, on the 13th. And I said, 
we're getting out of here. And we left on the 18th and arrived here on the 19th of March. So it was a panic move. And um, yeah, so it's quite happy to stay here. And then Victor pulled a swifty on me by saying that uh, <laughs> because the, the new part, the Liberals have been doing so well in raising awareness, at least in social media and with podcasts like this and so on, that he was willing to take a punt at the North Sydney electorate to get the leader of the party into the House of Reps rather than the Senate, which would be a first. Mm. Uh, and they said, well, I'd like you to be the Senate candidate. And I thought, oh, well, here we go again. Yep, all right. So I've got to head back and uh, make my residency New South Wales once more, which means I'm heading back at the end of this year and spending some time getting myself back on the electoral roll and so on, and then I'll be uh, a resident uh, of Australia and able to stand in the Senate. You do strike me as someone who acts according to what they believe in. That seems to be the culture of the new Liberals from what I've seen of them. Uh, kudos to Victor, rather than just talking about it, with a bit of pressure from his wife, who's also the, who's the president of the party, he said, well, you're complaining, why don't you form a rival party? <laughs> I said, okay, we'll do it. And they called it the New Liberals, and, and, and I was sceptical. Uh, but then I read his posts, and I finally decided to read his autobiography. And uh, I thought, okay, here's a person who has genuine ethics. Yep. I mean, when I saw the name, like most people, I went, ugh, liberals, you know, because of... I had the same reaction. It's become a swear word in Australia, courtesy of, of how it's been twisted to the right. I mean, uh, incarcerating refugees indefinitely. I mean, that is just a crime against humanity. And the punitive approach to welfare rather than a, pro a provisional approach to welfare. Mm. And, and the, the backwardness on climate... Uh, on economic policy, I've been fighting them right from my student days because it was all about free trade and comparative advantage, which I knew was intellectually nonsense, uh, which is deindustrializing the country. So the sophistication of the place was going backwards as well. Mm. I, I, I think we were of the generation that would have probably marched against Malcolm Fraser. <laughs> uh, I, I went, went on the Go Back, You Are Going the Wrong Way march uh, at Sydney University just before the dismissal as it happens. And you fast forward to the late 90, was it 1990s or 2000s, he resigned from the Liberal Party. When he was asked, why did you leave the Liberal Party? His answer was, I didn't leave them, they left me. Mm. And when you look at his, his, his history, he was a classic patrician liberal. Uh, the, the, the rich are obliged to do good things for the poor type perspective. Um, so he opened up the country to refugees from Cambodia and Vietnam. And that's why our culture was so radically transformed in the in the 70s. He established SBS, hmm. so a whole range of things like that. Uh, and that was that was coming out of the Liberal Party. It's funny that um, Malcolm Fraser now turns out to be seen as a very small L liberal because at the time he he wasn't arch reactionary. That's what we saw him as. Yeah, it, it just shows you how far to the right we've come because uh, he wasn't what you'd call a small L liberal back in the day. He uh, engineered the downfall of Whitlam. He was a hard-nosed uh, politician. He had the, the, the Fraser cuts and the rest of it. But he was somebody who believed in an open society, humanitarian attitude uh, to anybody disadvantaged uh, from a position of privilege. Mm. But th that would be unwelcome in the Liberal Party today. He, he, there's no way he would be locking people up for 10 years for the crime of of hopping on a boat to escape being persecuted in their own country and landing on Australia's shores. He loathed John Howard, and boy, do we agree with that. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. 
do you see a problem with having too many micro parties running a progressive agenda that might be stealing votes from each other? Well, not so much people realise we have a compulsory preferential voting system. If you if you give your first preference to one party and it doesn't get up, you give it to your second party and third and fourth and fifth. I, I was quite, quite an avid preferential voter when I was voting in Australia. So That works particularly with the um, the House of Reps, but when you're putting a Senate vote in, you could quite possibly only nominate micro-parties, not put any of the major parties in there because you're not required to fill out the whole the whole ballot paper. You could avoid voting for the major parties altogether. And in so doing, your vote might end up being uh, worth nothing. Yeah, well, we're, we're saying, you know, if use your preferences wisely. You don't have to stop. But whatever you do, put Liberal last. And like the, the trouble is, if you do just put your tick for the one party and then the party itself allocates your preferences, which is that above the line situation, uh, then you get all those preference deals and swappings and so on. The preference whispering has gone. Um, it still exists in state uh, state elections in Victoria. Mm. You pay that that guy twenty thousand dollars, and he'd organise your preferences so that possibly as a uh, an independent you might stand a chance. Yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. If you're an independent, you don't stand a chance. Uh, Darren Hinch wouldn't get it. You'd have to be really high profile. And so I guess um, what you'd have to say is probably one of the major parties is going to pick up. Um, uh, the seat. Uh, if you don't get in, you've got to preference them in the way you want. So being progressive, you'd say, uh, vote for Steve Keane uh, for the New Liberals. If I don't get in, vote for the Greens. If the Greens don't get in, vote for Labor. If Labor doesn't get in, then we're all buggered. So, <laughs> But yeah, the idea is to enhance the progressive vote. So we're very happy to certainly try to get a, a crossbench in Senate and preferably also the House of Reps because, as we've seen, the two major parties act as a duopoly. They're both neoliberal. Labor apologises for it and liberals brag about it. That's about the only difference. So, Kevin, put the liberals last. (laughs) Yeah, look, it does get a bit confusing, the... um, the preferential voting. Mm. If you're going to vote for a small micro party uh, and they have a chance of getting up, then you should give them that chance. But you don't want your vote thrown away if that doesn't happen. Essentially, preferential voting says if your vote doesn't win, would you prefer to have Labor running the country or would you prefer to have the coalition running the country? So it's it's like insurance. Mm. So I quite like that. And what you're hoping is that before the major party gets enough to win the seat that your preferred independent or whoever else might get enough votes. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. Just as a general strategy thing, I'm wondering what you hope to gain by challenging, and I'll quote from your candidate statement, the self-serving, simplistic souls who now dominate both Liberal and Labor on the floor of Parliament. Well, the major thing is the naive attitude that we have towards government deficit. You know, the, both parties try to bash each other ahead with your debt's bigger than our debt, as if that's a bad thing. But they're looking at government debt, they're ignoring household and corporate debt. And uh, household debt has gone from 20% of GDP to over 120% of GDP, a factor of six increase uh, over the last 50 years, while government debt was down at the 20 to 40% range until COVID hit, and even so, 
government's debt about half the level of household debt. Now, if they're worried about debt, why do they talk about the small one? It ends up it's because they've got a small-minded attitude <laughs> and understanding of what government debt is, which is where modern monetary theory has come in. And uh, what I've been doing is I've, I've specialised throughout my academic career in the dynamics of private debt. Mm. That's the area that I've focused on. And MMT is focused on government debt. And I've said, well, private debt is dangerous. And they've said government debt is relatively safe. With the two, two ideas are compatible, so we're bringing them together. On the show, we haven't yet talked about private debt in much detail. I'm wondering if you can give people an overview of just why that's such an important indicator of the health of the economy. Well, I'll tell you why the mainstream think it doesn't matter. Because if you read economics textbooks, like people like Paul Krugman and, and Gregory Mankiw and all this mob, say you don't worry about private debt and the state shouldn't regulate it and it doesn't affect anybody else. And the argument they have is that, well, you know, if Steve lends to Anne, then Steve's spending power's gone down and Anne's spending power's gone up. If Anne repays Steve, the opposite happens. And it's like a seesaw. You don't actually have any change in overall spending power. That's naive. That's, that's not what banks do. Banks do not lend out deposits. Mm-hmm. Banks create loans and create deposits at the same time. Mm-hmm. So what that means is when debt to banks is rising, spending power is rising. Mm. And when debt banks is falling, spending power is falling. So it's credit, which is the annual change in debt, is a major component of demand. And it's left out of mainstream economics completely, which is why they didn't see the financial crisis coming. Right. What's actually happened in Australia is, first of all, the Rudd government, and then the Abbott, and, then the, and now the Morrison government, encouraged Australian households back into debt to keep the house bubble going mm. and adding to demand, but the, at the cost of unaffordable housing and households being badly indebted to the banking sector, to the stage where now people are using a superannuation to pay off their debt. And what that means is ultimately the banking sector owns everything and we become paupers. So it's, it's, it works until it destroys the financial basis of, of, of Australian households, and that's where we're, we're on the verge of that now. Well, that is a, a huge cautionary note. Maybe we could delve into your policy solutions around the housing bubble, which is a big component of the private debt problem. Mm. And it seems to me it's like almost the impossible ask, which is if you're going to deal with the bubble, that means you're going to lower housing prices. And if you do that, you're actually going to reduce a lot of the wealth, I guess, that people have. That's, that, that's the dilemma. And we've actually worked out a solution to it. Okay, people sit up and pay attention. (laughs) I'm still writing that up, but it's not the price of your house you worry about, really. It's the difference between what you can sell it for and what you owe on it, your equity. Okay, So if you can drop house prices and also drop the debt that people are carrying, their equity remains constant. And in fact, if you keep on doing that, it's quite possible. If you like, if you did the absolute, which we're not we're not talking about doing. I want to just make this as a hypothetical. If somebody had a house which less than the average price now of a million dollars and a debt of eight hundred thousand, then if you could reduce equally the debt and the house price, the ultimate end of that is where you get a house two hundred thousand with no debt. Mm-hmm. So if you drop both the house price and the debt at the same time, then you maintain the equity, and that's our policy objective. And the question is, how do you achieve it? So the two parts of that are, first of all, bringing in controls on the amount of debt that can be used to buy a house, not based on the buyer's income, which is the usual nonsense all the banks have twisted over the years. I mean, my father was a bank manager, so I know this very well. Dad, dad would, uh, uh, if you didn't have a 30% deposit, you didn't get a loan. 
Mm-hmm. Back in our day, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, you took a 30% deposit. That was it. Now that you have a 2% deposit and the government underwrites the damn thing, which has just been a balloon pushing up house prices. Mm. And the reason why we've let this crazy level of gearing come about, we're all fighting for the houses. We're competing with each other. So we've been encouraged to want this higher level of debt. Uh, so we're saying, forget about this nonsense of basing it on the income of the buyer. We want to set a maximum level to the amount that can be borrowed against a house on the income earning capacity of that house. That's whether you rent it out or you can impute what its rental would be because we do have an imputed rental data series of the ABS. Again, this would not be the uh, starting point, but the objective would to get it down to the stage where the maximum amount that could be lent would be 10 times the annual rental income of the property. It's currently 20 to 1 when you look at the ratio. Mm. The more average mortgage is 20 times the average rent. Okay, so it's got to bring that right down to a stage where it's 10. Mm-hmm. So if a property rented for $1,000 a week, the maximum anybody could borrow for it would be $520,000. Mm-hmm. But the basic story is people on the same income would no longer be competing for a higher level of debt to buy the place. They'd be trying to save more money. So a higher price would reflect more savings, not more debt. Mm. Now, the thing is, how do you reduce the debt? And that's what we call a modern debt jubilee. Again, using what we know from modern monetary theory, uh, about the structure of payments, it's quite possible for the government to provide that money in the same way they provided all the money during the COVID outbreak, but on a, on a larger scale to wipe out a large part of household debt. Would it be fair to say that um, houses used to be something that uh, people lived in, but like for the last 20, 30 years, they've been turned into an investment opportunity, um, which has been promoted by both sides of government to some degree, although Shorten did try to have a little attack at it at the last election, it didn't go very well for him. Yeah, absolutely. And that's wrong. Yeah. Fundamentally, houses are long-term consumption items. Um, you know, if you want to invest or speculate, buy shares, <laughs> buy art, buy non-fungible tokens. That's a lot of piece of garbage that's turned up on the internet. <laughs> buy Bitcoin, for God's sake. But don't turn a, a fundamental human need, which is shelter, into a speculative object. But that's what we've allowed to happen. To me, it was always a travesty to turn housing into an investment market, uh, particularly at the same time the governments are saying we're trying to increase home ownership. <laughs> They've been very successful. We've gone from 45% of Australians owning their houses outright to 30%. Is this what the economists call pushing part of the economy into having a rentier income? Yeah, that's right. Oh, they don't call it that, but that's what it actually is. We've encouraged a rentier mentality, and rentiers expect to have their money grow uh, just because they have money where entrepreneurs expect their money to grow because they build a factory, invent some new product and try to take over part of an old market or establish a new one. And it's entrepreneurs we should be funding, not speculators. Mm. That we've ended up in a world where we, we glorify speculation over, over investment and uh, innovation. Professor Steve Keane. So if we're looking at offering some kind of jubilee as a way of decreasing that dangerous private debt. Have you gotten very far in formulating how you'd go about that? Yep. Uh, I've I've done models of it. Uh, And the basic idea I had, which I've now modified courtesy of discussions inside the New Liberals, Mm -hmm. by the way. So I've learned a lot from discussion with Victor about how to do it and with Richard Harms and another one of our advisors about shortcomings in my original idea. But the original idea was uh, that the state can create money. We, we know that now from watching what's happened with COVID, okay? It's not a mystery. We say that over and over on this show, yes. So the government can create money. 
And what it, it does ultimately is it's negative as the public's positive. So if the government issues a, a billion dollars in a deficit, that turns up as a billion dollars in private bank accounts. That's simple accounting, yeah? Yeah, simple accounting. And I've got the mathematics of that online and free on my website. That explains the logic of that and shows how it works. What's the name of that book? Uh, it's called Modeling with Minsky. Mm-hmm. It says my software is called Minsky, and that's on, that's on my Patreon website. But yeah, it's, if the government runs a deficit, then the private sector gets a surplus. So that's the simple rule. Well, what about if you wanted to reduce the level of household debt? You could give people an injection of money into their private bank accounts on the condition that if they have debt, they must reduce their debt by that amount. And even, even the ones whose house price had fallen would be better off. If they don't have debt, then they get cash. People who don't have debt, who therefore didn't gamble and speculate, so they were the ones who would have missed out if we only abolished debt on the old-fashioned idea of a jubilee. Instead, you give everybody an identical amount of money. Those with debt must pay their debt down. Those without debt get the money, and then it's what they do with the money. I was talking about saying they then have to buy shares, which are used to cancel corporate debt, because corporate debt is also at unprecedented levels globally and also in Australia. But as, as Richard Harms pointed out, well, corporations are now taking on more debt to pay down their equity. They've got this whole share buyback fast that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so what else could you do with the money? And so, well, the other possibility is so you can use that money for a deposit to buy a house. Mm. So let's take the example of a house. I know this is low these days, a million-dollar house with a $800,000 debt. And this is, again, hypothetical. But if everybody got, uh, every adult got 100,000 and you've got two adults in a house, then uh, the debt of 800,000 becomes a debt of 600,000. At the same time, limiting lending to no more than 10 times the annual rental income of a property. Mm. And if the income of people was also sustained, we have to actually improve incomes, courtesy, again, of not imposing austerity on the economy, then that would mean that people's debt burden fell, they'd have more income compared to their debt. Mm. Say people have been excluded from the housing market now by all these government policies which have driven house prices out of reach of ordinary people. They made a mistake, we're correcting it. Okay, <laughs> So we're going to balance that back after 40 years of government policy to push up house prices. So we're saying, okay, we're going to compensate for 40 years of mistakes by one year of doing it right, let's say. Well, you're one of the uh, few political entities I've heard of who, for one thing, can see a solution and for another is willing to try and implement it. We'll get laughed at in Parliament. <laughs> I actually ended up in Senate getting you know, ridicule from the both sides of House, but I've, I've handled ridicule for 50 years. I think I can cope a few more years. Well, you know, it's not such a small issue being able to handle ridicule because I've discovered that there's a lot of shaming that goes on to keep um, heterodox economics in its place. Exactly, yeah. On that, on that issue, uh, Labor certainly has made their economic language more conservative to try and uh, feed the conservative electorate. They won't take any risks, and we're seeing the Greens do it as well. Are, are you concerned that uh, bringing in this heterodox, but which to me seems perfectly logical and sensible. But are you concerned that you're going to cop ridicule? Is this something which might restrict your ability to to gain credibility? Oh, it'll it'll be damaging, but um, uh, but I'm going to walk straight into it. Mm-hmm. I know that the mathematics of the argument is 100 percent on my side, and the people who are arguing against me, including people like Paul Krugman. Uh, based on what I call mythematics, not mathematics. <laughs> They've never thought money is important. They've never modelled it properly, and therefore they don't have anything 
in terms of a solid understanding of what they're giving policy advice on. Yeah, that's one of the things that really stunned me as a layperson. I could not believe when economists were saying, oh, they don't have money in their models. And I'm like, my goodness, that's like a physician who hasn't looked at blood or something. <laughs> and they are proud of it. They say, well, you know, by, by leaving money out, we cut through the veil of money to see barter mm-hmm. lying behind it. And that's sensible. Well, I know it's garbage. Uh, and it's a, it's a foundation myth in economics. You can find it in Adam Smith. You don't find it in some of the preceding schools of thought as it happens. So it's Adam Smith and then the neoclassicals after that who leave money out of their thinking. But mathematical models of the economy do not have money or private debt or private banks. Probably why they're working so well. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Heading back to your policy platform there, I did see something in the in the mainstream media about your concerns around uh, what you call genuine full employment. Mm. And I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by it and what you would do about it. Yeah, well, I was backtracking to when we were youths. Uh, when I went to university in 1971, the unemployment rate, I think, was 1.5%. Mm. And that was actually regarded as relatively high. Uh, it was actually fell over the year. And then we had the explosion where it went from, and then 74, from 1% to 5%. And it's never really fallen back down. But the common attitude between uh, 1946 and 1973, pretty much, was that unemployment should be of the order of 2% for the population because at 2%, it's basically frictional. And that should be the objective of government policy. And if I can quote the uh, the 1946 white paper on employment written by Nugget Coombs, one of Australia's great public servants, uh, and I know this almost by heart, I'll go as close as I can, the objective of government policy should be to maintain such pressure upon the economy as to guarantee uh, a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs. Amazing. Forgiving the sexism of the time, that was the attitude. It was, of course, when we talk about Menzies, we use Menzies quite frequently, appealing to an earlier stage of liberalism. Mm. It really was people like Nugget Coombs who had a nation-building approach to what we should do. And after the horrors of the Great Depression and the Second World War, the emphasis of policy was on maintaining a decent standard of living for the vast majority and, and not letting anybody f- fall through the hoop of being unemployed because of lack of aggregate demand. Mm. Ever since '74, they want a level of unemployment that they think is going to keep inflation under control. I just recently um, learnt that it was actually Bill Hayden that uh, ended the full employment policies that uh, Nugget Coombs devised in the last death throes of the Whitlam government. It seemed to be that they were, they were trying to appease the conservatism uh, that was coming in through that time. Exactly. Pandering to the conservative thinking. And the Labor Party got caught up in that. I was a member of the ALP for about a year or two before I got bored with being a member of a local branch where you were just expected to turn up and vote aye to everything coming out of head office. But I was involved in drafting the Accord documents back in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, okay. 
and had a dealing with various policies, including Lindsay Tanner. I remember one particular exchange I had with Lindsay Tanner, and I was saying, look, what you're talking about is becoming good economic managers by following economic textbooks. They said, the textbooks are wrong. Mm. Economics is nonsense. If you do that, yes, you, you, you might do okay for a while, but it'll all come crashing down on you ultimately because you're going to push in progressive social policies with bad economics, not just conservative, bad economics, you will ultimately undermine the social policies as well. Mm. And he said, no, 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 I've got to be sure we're better economic managers, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, he won the day. In that sense, Labor really helped set up neoliberalism. And if you look at where what we call neoliberalism came from, it really came out of the days of Hawke and Keating. Yeah, I've heard that said quite a few times. Yeah. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Professor Steve Keane, let's have a listen to him now talking about full employment. So, so going back to this idea of turning it around and once again going back to genuine full employment, which looks like a rate of about under 2% unemployment, which is frictional unemployment. Mm. So how would you get us to that low rate? Well, partly it's going away from the nonsense of government trying to run a surplus uh, in the belief that that's you know, saving for the country is actually pushing the private sector into a deficit, which means the private sector either spends less uh, which gives you a downturn, or it borrows from the banks and we get caught up in a speculative bubble. So the government creates money when it runs a deficit. If it spends more than it takes back in taxation, it's putting more money into people's bank accounts than it's taking out of them. Uh, and that then means that there's more money in circulation, which we then use for our normal person to corporate commerce and so on. So you get more economic activity out of it. And uh, we'd also be trying to reduce the level of private debt as I've said, that's a major objective. And one thing which I've learned from my complex systems modeling is that in my, the model that I first built back in 92 of a credit-driven economy, for simplicity, I had firms doing the borrowing of money and only using it to build factories. So it was 100% the way you want borrowed money to be used to build more productive capacity. That still could lead to a crash. You could have people borrowing more in a boom than they could pay back in a slump, and after a number of booms and slumps, you had a crash. But the intriguing side effect of that model was, even though I had the firms doing the borrowing, the group that paid for the high level of debt were the workers. Workers' income shares fell directly because of the rising level of private debt. And that's then what's turned up in the data. This is actually what happens in the economy. So a higher level of private debt means lower workers' wages. So partly reversing that, um, pushing the debt mm-hmm. down, will improve workers' share of GDP. And because workers spend more rapidly than wealthy capitalists do, wealthy people, you get more economic activity even without changing the amount of money in the economy. Going back to the full employment, does the job guarantee fit in your vision there? Yeah, the job guarantee is part of the proposal. I mean, this is where I have to defer to another Australian, Bill Mitchell, on the scale of what was necessary. We should explain for the listeners that a job guarantee is a job provided by the government for anybody who wants a job uh, at the minimum wage. Yeah. So if you lose your job for whatever reason, or you come out of school and you can't find a job, then your first thing is a job guarantee, which would be working for a council regeneration projects, taking care of the aged, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The objective, I think, has to be that rather than a reserve army of unemployed, 
there's a reserve army of job guarantee employed. Mm. But the interesting thing is if you look back in our history, uh, back to the 40s and 50s, the bureaucrats back in those days, they had what they call you know, shovel-ready projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, they literally had 10, 20, 30, 40 infrastructure programs, which if there were resources for it, could be put into effect straight away. The Snowy Mountain Scheme being the largest of those, of course, but something of that nature. Um, but that sort of thing means people would have a job and a minimum wage, which was a living wage. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3cr.org.au so there was Steve quoting from the 1945 white paper on full employment, which is from back in the day when the government actually wanted to achieve full employment in the economy. That white paper was by uh, Nugget Coombs, I believe, uh, mm. who's quite quite famous for the time, Very a very proactive time in history. So people were looking for solutions coming out of World War II. Yes, they had come out of World War II and they understood how the government can, in fact, create full employment. And they're describing full employment as a shortage of workers, not a shortage of jobs. Kevin, what I reckon is really interesting that's gone on since those days is we have a government now that is able to say to us, well, we're still trying to get to full employment. And the tricky thing that they've done in their neoliberal way of doing things is that they've redefined what full employment is. And so now they've redefined full employment to mean this thing called the Nehru which is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. I find this whole redefinition of full employment obscene. Mm. Full, full employment after World War Two was to make sure that, as you would expect when he's talking about full employment, is that everybody who wanted a job had a job. You know, that, that seems pretty... That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't pretty it? Pretty straightforward. <laughs> what we've seen with a neoliberal realignment of economics is that they now define full employment as the rate at which employment is sufficient enough to put downward pressure on wages, which is to say that there's enough of unemployed to keep workers desperate so that they won't be too pushy about asking for a pay rise. Which they think might lead to inflation. And that Nairu figure, it's mathematical hocus-pocus. It's not even a real thing, as we've discussed in other shows. But what they end up with is running about 3 to 6% of unemployment, which doesn't sound like a lot, like doesn't sound like a big figure, but what that translates to is at any one time you have got thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Australia deliberately locked out of the economy, deliberately kept in poverty, and we know that there are all sorts of things that go on with unemployment, including intergenerational unemployment which is creating an underclass in this society. And on top of that, just on top of like the raw, straight unemployment figures, we've got this growing underemployment factor. Large employers and orthodox economists are also able to put downward pressure on wages by the casualisation of the workforce. So by making people having to keep two or three jobs hopping around the place and never really quite having enough, it also achieves the same downward pressure on wages that straight unemployment does mm-hmm. and they've been they've been given credibility by uh, neoliberal economics that say that this is now full employment when you sacrifice 
hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people in your community, to living uh, always without enough. And this is the economics that Steve Keen was criticising in his book, Debunking Economics. So it's it's not just you and me making this stuff up, Kevin. <laughs> no, no. Look, we we actually don't make anything up because um, everything we know we've learnt from other people. We're we're not that uh, we're not that smart. So yeah. <laughs> When the federal government runs a budget deficit, most people think that means that the whole economy is going into a deficit, but they're only looking at half of the picture, which is from the government's point of view, money's gone away from them and into the economy. But that money had to go somewhere. Someone had to receive it. If the government, for example, was spending on increasing the unemployment rate to the poverty line by doubling the unemployment rate, say it spent a billion dollars doing that, then that billion dollars had to go somewhere and it went into the pockets of the unemployed. We've got to remember when people who are short of a buck receive money, they spend it straight into the economy. Rich people don't need things. Unemployed people and people who are, had their, their work casualised and are short of buck, they need stuff. They need tyres. They need a new couch. They need things, and they spend it straight into the economy. The rich people, when they receive a little cash bonus, they buy shares. They buy some investment portfolio. That, that doesn't help small businesses. Exactly. And what you're describing there, Kevin, is what the economists call aggregate demand. Aggregate demand. Which just means the total demand in the economy. That's the thing that will determine whether or not you've got unemployment. You need enough aggregate demand. People are using the money to demand the goods and services. And if there's not enough aggregate demand, then people aren't spending enough. And if they're not spending enough, businesses will look at their sales and go, oh no, my sales are going down this quarter. I better not make as many widgets next quarter. And if they're not making as many widgets, then they're going to maybe let some people go or not employ as many people. And gradually in the whole economy, you'll get a downturn. You'll get more unemployment because there's not enough aggregate demand. What you're saying is aggregate demand creates a flow on effect. So if you inject uh, currency into the right part of the economy, you give it to people who need money as opposed to people who don't. They spend at their local businesses. Those businesses become busy. They have to employ more people. The suppliers become busier because they're making more stuff, which means they have to employ more people. You have this flow-on effect of activity that occurs if you spend at the right level of the economy. Mm. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio. I'm also in favour of universal basic income, by the way. Okay. Universal and basic in the sense that it covers everybody and it covers the basic needs one has to have to survive. Then you have a job guarantee and then there's a private employment market. So the way that you would see a basic income sitting alongside a job guarantee is that it would be at a maybe a lower rate. Yeah. A lot of the MMTs are very pro-job guarantee and very anti-UBI. That would be me. <laughs> okay. Well, one of my perspectives on it is that ultimately... Uh, saying uh, in a hundred years' time it'll be possible to fly from Australia to Europe in in twenty hours, and I said that to you in nineteen hundred. Mm. Okay, you say what a bloody idiot that guy is. God, okay, off of the fairies. <laughs> Takes six weeks to sail, and don't be ridiculous. Yeah. So, like, if we survive as a species, and that's an if in my mind, rather than a mm -hmm. okay, then we are ultimately going to have to be doing most of our production off planet. Off off planet, okay. Okay. You're, you're going into science fiction with a basic income. <laughs> One or 200 years, okay? One or 200 years. 10, 9, 8, 7, 
If, if this conversation was taking place in 1900, I wouldn't even bother talking about it, okay? Uh, two reasons. One, because he didn't have the technology. But two, because we were well within the planetary boundaries at that stage. Now, if you look at where we are now, we're well past those boundaries. So what do we do? If we actually want to imagine a future where the standard of, of living is raised for the majority of people to a comfortable living, which is not the case for two or three billion people, at least on the planet right now, and we want to go progress in the sort of Elon Musk sense of, you know, the excitement of being human and exploration and so on, uh, then ultimately we're going to produce most of our goods off planet. Mm. And in that situation, it's rather hard to say you've got to get a job. <laughs> the, the mindset that seems to be prevailing at the moment is that we need to use less, that we are extravagant in our uh, use of natural resources and that we need to be more efficient uh, and that if we did that, then we could live within our means. Because what you're suggesting is that if we're using 1.7 times the Earth's uh, available resources per year, and so what you're saying is, well, if we're using more than what the Earth can provide, we need to go and find it elsewhere. Effectively, yeah. Yep. That's saying at the moment that in terms of this planet's capacity to reproduce itself every year, so you know, incoming solar radiation, plant regeneration, processing of waste by the natural feedback systems of the planet and so on, uh, humans are using 1.7 times that capacity on their own. So the rest of the planet, you know, the species that we don't eat uh, or ride or whatever else, gets minus, uh, minus 0.7 per annum. Well, this is breakdown material. Mm. So you have to be aware of that and you've got to say, okay, we've got to go backwards. We have to consume less. Uh, there's, there's no way we can sustain the level of economic growth that's become accepted for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and I focus on Learjets rather than um, you know, bicycles. It's the wealthy who are doing most of that over-consuming. So you've got to bring their level of consumption down. So you've got to reduce income inequality and you've got to put the pressure of adjustment on the wealthy, not the poor. Mm. Um, but you also have to reduce humanity as a whole. And we should be reserving at least half the planet, if not more, for non-human use. Mm. And that only works if we don't destroy the planet we're on, which is what we are doing. Ten. Ultimately, we're going to produce most of our goods off planet. Imagine a future. Imagine a future. Imagine a future. If we survive as a species. Ultimately, we're going to produce most of our goods off planet. And in that situation, it's rather hard to say you've got to get a job. When you talk about the chance for everyone to own a home 
or increasing the productive capacity of the economy, then I've often wondered how that looks in relation to the fact that we need to ratchet down our resource use. I mean, if you think about the, the pressure we have to work at the moment, uh, it's coming out of the fact we've got to pay the mortgage. And a lot of the expenses people incur are because they aren't housed. I think you can reverse the pressure to earn an income and the pressure to, to some extent that actually may reduce environmental pressures. So to reverse the failed policy of the last 40 years, mm. we simply can't treat inequality and climate change independently uh, and, and unemployment. All these things have to be thought about in a coherent way. This is why I talk about complex systems. There's no such thing as, as equilibrium in a system like that. You're far from equilibrium. Changing one element will have pressure effects on another. And if you don't think about it that way, you're going to stuff up. And of course, because equilibrium thinking is what dominates mainstream economics, and that's the skeleton of neoliberalism is neoclassical economics. Well, that's a lousy skeleton. Mm. Having had 50 years of this ideology dominating the economy globally, we've trebled or quadrupled the pressure we put on the planet at the same time. Do you think the um, the current circumstances, the, the, uh, the economic catastrophe that's been caused by COVID might soften up general thinking towards the catastrophe that's heading our way in climate change. Yeah. This has made everybody rethink what work is and where income comes from. Yeah. Apparently, Morrison has told the states that he's not going to give them any more money for hospitals. They've got to find it for themselves. What arrant stupidity. That is therefore meaning that people are not getting the money to maintain the hospitals. Right. You run a deficit, the people worry about the government money being spent badly. I don't think anybody could think about expanding our hospital capacity as a bad thing, especially during a pandemic. Well, what's he doing? He's telling the states, you go find the money. Well, the states can't create money. Somehow they could find the money for those nuclear-powered submarines. Probably with their, their orthodox way of thinking of how uh, the economy works, they've run out of money for hospitals because it's all gone on the subs. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so th this is just showing how destructive this thinking is and what we've got to fight against it. But in the sense of being a, a trial run, as much as people have complained about lockdown, um, but if you can imagine a similar sort of thing saying we've simply got to reduce the amount we're producing, we can provide people with sufficient income to get their basic needs covered uh, while we try to rebuild the uh, economy to reduce our output of carbon. It, it's possible to do that to some degree. It's not easy. To move on to another policy area, mm. this idea of introducing a central bank digital currency mm. and then giving everyone a digital account at the Reserve Bank of Australia, which is Australia's central bank. Mm -hmm. The part I couldn't really understand was this part around digital currency because I thought we were all kind of online anyway and cash is going the way of the dodo. Well, cash, I mean, I, I don't want to ban cash while neoclassical economists are in charge of central banks or treasuries because they haven't got a damn clue about how money operates. And the last thing you want is somebody who doesn't understand money to deciding to abolish cash. So I'm in favour of maintaining cash. Uh, but the reason for saying digital is simply that. It's electronic. Mm. Um, like if you, you have a, a bank account, that gives you a right to go to an ATM or go into a branch and withdraw cash. That would not be something you could do with a central bank account. It would be purely digital. Uh, whether it linked up to your private account would be a different story. Mm. When you've got a a computer-based account system, then you can put anything through it. It doesn't have to be money. Uh, it doesn't have to be convertible. 
But what it means is that at the moment, if the government wants to affect your bank accounts, it's got to go through the private banking sector. Okay. Now, this would say that here's a direct conduit. If we want to do something rapidly, we can do it through the digital account as well. And that could be a universal basic income. It could be our idea of the modern debt jubilee, doing it through that account rather than through private accounts. Right. This would see anybody who's an adult resident who's over 16 who gets a central bank uh, digital currency account, and therefore we can deal with them through that account. And central banks around the world have been looking at forming digital currencies for a long time. Some of them because they do want to abolish cash because they want to be able to bring in negative interest rates on deposit accounts, which I think is, is insane. And then, of course, the whole Bitcoin thing has made them think about uh, public ledgers, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I want that in existence before we have a climate crisis. Say, say more about that. Because if you get it's like a truly catastrophic event in the climate thing, which scares the bejesus out of people, we need to realize just how serious this is. Then in that point, you might say, we want to cut back on production drastically. Okay, so we don't want the level of output we've got right now. And that means XYZ factories aren't going to be producing anymore. Well, you don't want workers in XYZ factories not being able to buy food anymore. Mm. So something like a, a digital currency in existence at the time. Again, a bit like what we should have done with COVID, you know, instant payments to anybody who's unemployed so they can pay their rent, pay their mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, rather than having them individually suffer. Now, with um, my understanding of modern monetary theory, I think of money as the tool that moves resources around. Well put, yeah. Yeah, and so if you're rearranging how your resources are moving around, you don't want to leave that in the hands of your commercial banks. Directly. Mm. You really would want to do that via a tool that the yeah. federal government has. Yeah. Private banks work fairly effectively as, as a conduit there when you have a tax system that does it. So like in Australia's case, as you know, uh, we all have tax numbers, tax file numbers. So the government can take money out of a bank account to pay our taxes and it can use that account to put an injection in. That's what was done with Kevin Rudd with the $960 per Australian who'd paid their tax that year. That was easy. I get to the UK and I find there was a discussion about should we, should we do what Australia did? And it turned out people in the UK don't have tax file numbers unless they are self-employed, most of them. So you, you don't actually have a conduit. So the tax office doesn't know you have a bank account. And they said to try to put it all together would take six months to a year. Ah. Wow. Um, so as it happens, the Australian situation in that sense is superior because we can then use mm. the private bank accounts through the tax system. I was seeing it as the equivalent of a public option for banking. In other words, people could be choosing uh, not to go through a commercial bank but to do their basic retail banking of you know, saving and so on through the central bank. Is that what you were thinking? No, uh, at the moment because that would undermine the liability side of the private banks. Is it also because you've learnt the, um, the lessons that happened in 1947-48 with uh, Chifley at the time, was it, when he tried to nationalise the banks? You were going into politics and you were talking about nationalising the banks. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have one national bank. I want to re-nationalise the Commonwealth Bank, yep. for example. Not necessarily saying that one we should have had a public bank abolishing it was stupid so the idea would be let's create a public bank that's what the japan has for example a postal savings bank system something like that oh uh, yep i've heard that so the, the the central bank digital currencies could quite possibly not take deposits so two things there the the digital currency is part of your infrastructure for dealing with national emergencies yep and then your public banking option is a separate thing. I think that the best way it was ever put was by um, South Australian Hugh, um, Hugh Stratton. 
he was the man responsible for low-income housing and he had a whole bunch of Bolshe lefty staff. And it was Friday drinks one day and one of them said, oh, there should be no such, no private housing, it should all be publicly built. And Hughes said, no, we need them to keep us efficient and they need us to keep them honest. <laughs> That's the classic mixed economy moment. Yeah, and so the idea of have a public bank which keeps the rest of them honest while they keep the public bank efficient. For a politician, you speak a lot of sense. And... <laughs> I'm not a politician, and that's partly... He's not yeah. a politician yet. Yet. <laughs> Potential politician. Potential politician, yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good note to finish up on. I've had a very enjoyable conversation. So thanks very much for your time and coming on to the show. Thank you. Nice speaking to you, Steve. Good on you. Thank you, Kevin. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye all. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Kevin, I am not convinced by Steve that a UBI is the way to go. I was not convinced by his argument. <laughs> yeah, but I get it because this is a conversation that comes up in uh, MMT circles quite a lot. Mm. There's this whole trade-off that uh, says that if you have a successful job guarantee running, what do you do with people who either don't want to work or aren't working for whatever reason? So when he's talking about the UBI, he's basically saying, oh, look, we still need to look after people uh, if they're not working. Um, and I think you and I would agree with that. Mm. I might be a bit harder on this than you are, Kevin. I tend to think that what we need to do is get a job guarantee in place and then see how the, you know, see how the... Um, see how the landscape uh, pans out. Yeah, because uh, I don't think we need to be worrying about anything like either a basic income or a UBI until we sort out the unemployment problem. Yeah, if everybody who wanted a job had a job, and people might think that's far-fetched, but that's how the situation was post-World War Two for about 30 years, from 1946 through to about 1973, Steve Keen said, the unemployment rate was... Uh, well below 2% most of the time, and anybody who wanted a job could have a job. Uh, however, I think that even in these circumstances, and we talk about unemployment rate levels, as a population, as a society that currently is offering people without a job a, a rate that is half the poverty level, mm. that, that's punishment. That, that that's not that's not a social security net no no that's that's punishment mm. what do we do as we're transitioning across to a fully effective job guarantee where people mm. they're getting a good living wage for working 20 hours a week there's going to be some transition uh, going into a job guarantee and you're still going to have people unemployed i think that we need to put the unemployment rate at the poverty level at the very least so that people aren't living below the poverty line mm. now is that a ubi or is that just increasing the unemployment rate to a level? Yeah. And we still need to look after those who need support. I, I think that the job guarantee is part of an overall picture of strengthening, as they say, strengthening your social security net. So you are increasing disability payments, uh, single parent payments, and the retirement benefit as well. Yeah. But the thing, the thing that didn't convince me with Steve is like he had to go far into the distant future for what is called a universal basic income, where everyone's getting a payment without needing to work for it. And my my issue with that is the UBI is not how you get to that future. So he's talking about a time after we've managed to deal with the climate crisis. And I'm pretty much convinced these days 
that in order to deal with the climate crisis, we do have to fundamentally alter how the economy works because the economy, or more particularly extractive capitalism, is what's produced this crisis and so that has to change. We actually have to restructure the economy away from extractive capitalism and just generically people call that post-capitalism. With post-capitalism, you know, I'm not saying personally, I don't think that means you can't have um, markets. I think you can still have markets, you can still have entrepreneurs, you can still have businesses, you can still have money, but it's the way all those pieces are put together into a different kind of economy. And I don't know that Steve was saying the UBI is a way to get there, but the UBI is not a pathway into post-capitalism. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you haven't restructured uh, the way the economy works into something that you might call a mixed economy, some people might call it socialism, is that if you haven't done that before you um, start up with a UBI, is that you are still putting people in the place of being consumers. That's all you're doing. And in fact, poor consumers at that. <laughs> it's, it's true. Look, the UBI um, sounds idealistic and lovely, but in our current mindset, the UBI basically feeds the capitalist system. It just means that people can keep on consuming the way that they they have been. Mm. And that's that's not good for the planet. That's not working. And and I've got to say, Steve King is uh, definitely a forward thinker. So we, we need to check ourselves because he's talking about uh, heading into uh, outer space to uh, to meet our <laughs> needs here, which is not a concept I agree with. I think we need to learn to live within our means. Oh, my gosh. Taking extractive capitalism to Mars, it just breaks my heart. <laughs> but uh, so, so, look, if we're talking about climate change in the economy, mm. um, I think that most of the conversations that you hear in the mainstream – are very optimistic and I think we need to have a good reality check because we've been having this conversation seriously for about 30 years mm. and, and, and much longer than that. There's been quite strong awareness that we are living beyond our means on this planet and we need to make some changes. Mm. And every time we have this conversation, it gets compromised and the can gets kicked down the road. You know, the reason for that is because... The people who really do run the economy don't want it to change. Well, they're, they're profiting from it. I, th I think we are, as a species, uh, <laughs> we, we cannot think that far ahead. Now, Steve Keane is thinking ahead, and he's, I think he's finding hmm. a, a solution, uh, which involves going um, off planet. And, uh, into <laughs> off-planet. <laughs> Uh, the reality is that that's probably not going to happen, and I don't think there's going to be any substantial change until we see some real pain mm. uh, uh, affecting a lot of people. And once you're in that situation, anything could happen, really. It could go anywhere. Mm. And from the optimistic point of view, I would suspect that we have enough resources to give everyone a decent standard of living. And it's just that some countries are hogging more of the resources than other countries. And so when we talk about getting enough aggregate demand, for example, not to have unemployment, uh, that just means that you're spending enough for everyone to consume all the goods and services. But then you can look at, well, what are these goods and services? And I think about, well, some services, for example, could be more people being able to afford massages or to learn French or to learn to play a guitar. And those are not resource intensive activities. You know, we're not, as, as Steve says, we're not all going to be running around in Lear jets, but we can give the global economy a decent standard of living. 
you're talking about shifting the focus away from consuming mm. to things like well-being and the environment. Mm. A well-being economy, I like that word. Yeah, so, so rather than all the activity being focused towards buying new stuff that you don't need or that you're going to have for a short time and then throwing it away, which is how we live, and plastic is a very good example, to a more socially interactive society where people are sharing experiences as opposed to consuming materials. Uh, like you said, we already do this. There are people that, that do businesses where they make you feel good by rubbing your back. <laughs> what does that use? A bit of oil. <laughs> use a bit of oil, and, and, and that can be done sustainably. It, it could be done uh, in, in a far, far more sustainable way in, in terms of our, our footprint. Yeah. So it's changing the focus, and the focus of our economy, which is driven by the US model, mm. is that of consumerism, mm. buy, use, throw away. Uh, and this goes into the, the whole donut economics by... By Kate Raworth, yeah. Kate Raworth goes into that really well, uh, donut economics. Yes. The point of talking about it this way is to not make post-growth and degrowth and post-capitalism scary words. They actually can be a much better way of living. Well, Kevin. We're out of time again. It's been a whole hour of jumping off what Steve had said there. I have to say, just on his unemployment policies alone, I'd vote for him, even if I don't agree with everything he says. I actually really like what he's saying. I think uh, I think Steve Keane is a, is a smart fella. He really he's he's spent some time, uh-huh. and he's going to put in the legwork now. <laughs> anyway, thank you for organising people like Steve, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll do it again in a couple of weeks. See you then, Kevin. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on Three CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself, so if you've got all the pleasure... What, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. It's really, you have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.